morning. As Miss Vera said, we'll be reading from 1 Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came out into the midst of camp and in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and they made sure that Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I don't know about you this morning, but I do know that I had a hard time even seeing the lyrics of that Is He Worthy song. When I listened to that beautiful song, that our choir introduced for us long ago. I remember being moved by it then, but as Greg would make the statements that come right from Scripture about who he is, and our only response was, he is. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is new creation coming? It is. So that I couldn't even get through the long lines as it described the beauty of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we gather every Lord's Day because that is all true. We've talked as we've looked at 
God working with his people in the midst of suffering and battle. Even today, God's covenant people in 1 Samuel 11 are confronted by a foreign power. Groaning, what do we do? God, will you respond? Brothers and sisters, that is our lives. I met with a sister this week in our church who's going through severe loss. And I prayed for her, Lord, may your spirit comfort her. It's all creation groaning. It is. There's new creation coming. It is. You were made to worship. You were literally, hear this, kids and adults alike, every one of us was created to worship the king. And that is why we're here today. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to minister through his word so that we'd be reminded of his goodness and his greatness in the midst of our suffering, or even for some of us in our joys, that God would just remind us that new creation is coming, the lamb sits on the throne, and we trust him in the good days, in the bad days, in the rainy days, and in the heat of the sun. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so we can see you and know you. And even as we, your children, sing out, you are the Lion of Judah, the Lamb on the throne. We groan as we wait for your kingship to be made manifest over all nations and all peoples. We think of our brothers and sisters around the globe who this day, as the world turns, will worship you in venues we will never visit, in languages we will never speak, but in the spirit that we worship through right now. Help us to hear from your word this morning and be edified and exhorted, rebuked and encouraged as only your word can do, because you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a bit of a graphic text. It's violent. It it depicts the real world. Whoever this Nahash the Ammonite is, he was aggressive. He besieged Jabesh Gilead, did enough to let them know he wasn't joking around. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, please don't slaughter us all. Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. They had no option. They were clearly the weaker force. So look at verse 2, what Nahash the Ammonite said. On this condition will I make a treaty with you. And it's graphic. This is a at least PG-13 story. You have to gouge out your right eyes. And the text says specifically what Nahash was intending, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. This is an honor-shame culture. It will literally physically disable them and make them look weak. But there's something more you need to know that a little bit of history would help. This was actually not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. Several other nations would require this. The right eye was a particularly significant eye for ancient warfare. In the ancient world, you would, with your most people, like even today, would be right-handed. They would hold a sword with their right hand and a shield with their left. 
Now, the reason the right eye becomes important is because the position you would use to hold the shield would actually block the vision out of your left eye because you would have it high enough so that you could protect yourself. So your right eye became essential so you could see around the shield for battle. So by gouging out the right eye, you just made impotent any kind of warrior. They would have to lower their shield to see with the left eye and be completely vulnerable to attack. In essence, they couldn't fight, or at least not with a shield. If you can't fight with a shield, you lose. So it wasn't even just a disgrace, as verse 2 makes clear. It was annihilation. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, look at this, what they say. If there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now that word save us is literally the same Hebrew word from which we get the word Messiah. More on that later. So when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul... They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Again, let's not brush through that. Picture that. You, you just have heard that a foreign power is about to crush you. And, and if you don't capitulate, you're dead. If you do capitulate, you're disgraced. You and your children. And you're completely weak. And if it's not this nation, then another just will come. So imagine the weeping for whatever period of those days of a nation crying out. Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Here's the king who went back to farming. Doesn't look like his kingly behavior. Maybe he hasn't figured it out yet that that's the role he's supposed to have. Coming from the field behind the oxen, he was working and he hears the weeping of the people, and he says, and what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Now notice verse 6. Now just watch how in this human story with human people, with a real political military crisis, God's word always weaves into it the work of our God. He doesn't just let something happen as mere description of, well, then Saul became angry. Notice key words, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. What does that even mean? What that look like? What on the surface may have looked like, this was just a man who got enraged. God let us know with his perspective that it was actually God's Spirit. Rather than giving him a spirit of fear and timidity, gave him a boldness, a courage, a strength to respond as the Lord would have him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger greatly kindled. Seven, verse seven, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. This is quite the delivery message he wanted to give to his people. And sent them throughout all the terror of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever 
does not come out after Saul and Samuel, that is, whoever does not come with us to battle, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Notice again how Scripture tells the story. It doesn't just say that it was sociologically or economically motivating what Saul did. It was ultimately the Lord who raised up Saul, and it was ultimately the Lord who raised up his people. And notice that phrase, and they came out as one man, unity. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. That's an ancient way of saying by the middle of the afternoon. We won't even need the whole day. You're working a short day tomorrow. Banker's hours tomorrow. We got this figured out. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad, understatement of the year. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, this is what they say to Nahash, in middle of verse 10, tomorrow, the ESV says, we will give ourselves up to you. But it, the Hebrew is a little trickier than that. It, it's a little bit of a play on words. They really say something like, we will come out to you tomorrow. And it's ambiguous. They're not exactly saying that they're coming out to fight. They make it sound like they're just coming to give themselves up. And they even end it with, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the hour of the day. That is before the sun even fully rose. Something like four in the morning. 330,000 men charged. One came from the front, but he flanked them by both sides. And listen to the depiction in the text. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day as promised, meaning by the middle of the afternoon, it was over. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. There wasn't even like a platoon still fighting. It was annihilation. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Like the people saw, this is clearly a king. But Saul said, not Samuel, they said it to Samuel, but Saul's the one that responds, verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day. And notice what he says, good word, king, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He knew exactly who had done it. Brothers and sisters, don't miss how Scripture God is there. Three times in just a few verses in what could have looked like a story that would make Saul famous forever or the brave warrior activity of his people or the great ruling of a king. Three times the text says it was God. It was God who stirred Saul up to do what he'd been assigned by God to do. It was God who 
stirred the people up to unite as one force. And it was God who ultimately was the Redeemer. Remember verse 3? Let's see if there is a Savior, a Messiah to save us. There is, but it's not Saul. Verses 14 and 15 depict this beautiful worship of God's covenant people. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Let us establish ourselves as God's people. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord. They're thinking, king, God knows it's prince. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Again, brothers and sisters, Scripture teaches us to see God as the true authority and the true power behind the things happening in our world. And and, and we need to regularly allow the text to minister to us that way. Who is the king of our world? who is ultimately, even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of allowing J-hashes to live and move around us and threaten, who in our day, as in this day of 1 Samuel 11, who is the king sitting on the throne? The one to whom we just sang, he is worthy. It is our God. King Jesus is reigning over every aspect of your life, even the seemingly insurmountable ones. Now, please hear this. That doesn't mean that there isn't going to be suffering. That doesn't mean that King Jesus always responds to your beck and call. That's not it. It just means he is king. So if and when and as things happen to you, you can trust in the king. And man, that's hard work. That's why we need to sing again, maybe. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is the new creation coming? It is. He is worthy. I will trust him as king in my life. It'd be so easy, and it is. It's easy for us to rely on human things and human actors and human actions, right? If God hadn't told us this story, if it had been an Israelite not knowing behind the scenes of what worked in Saul or what united the people, or if they'd missed Saul's declaration that this day... The Lord has worked salvation in us. If they hadn't heard any of that from their own human eyes, they would have looked at the scene and said, Saul is a great king, and we are great warriors, and we are a great nation. But after reading these 15 verses, what does the biblical writer see? God raised up a leader. He united his people, and he is the Redeemer. So we got to not miss God. And I worry that in our day, and as we look at our own lives and our own situations, we can remove God from the equation. Scripture won't let us do it. And let us not do it in our own lives as well. Now I want to end by showing how the things this text teaches us about God And the way he works is like a movie trailer for how he would ultimately work in the new covenant. 
That is, 1 Samuel 11 projects the ways God works in the church today through the new covenant. Before things shine out how he works, not just in his covenant people in the Old Testament, but even in his covenant people, the church. The Bible has these themes, these, these topics, key phrases and words that run throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So that when you look not just at the tree, but at the forest of Scripture, you see that these themes just keep popping up. And God redeems and works in these kind of ways. And the first is what I mentioned in verse 3 about the church's Savior. Right? The world cries out. God's people cry out. Is there someone who will save us? And do you know who that someone is? His name is Jesus. That Jesus defends and saves us from evil. And in fact, what the gospel story tells us is he doesn't just save us from the evil out there. He also saves us from ourselves. The evil in here. And what's so beautiful about the way that Jesus matches the scene here is that the text says that Nahash was trying to give shame to God's people. And Israel, like us, are covered in the shame of our broken condition and sin. Yet Jesus covers our shame. By His wounds we are healed. Scripture loves to project images of a single Redeemer who saves His people. Saul being one of them. And all of those are types or images or projections of Christ who is a true Redeemer. The world cries out in their brokenness, not just with a political power, but in sin and destruction, in their own chaos of their lives. Is there anybody who can redeem us? And what does the church say? Well, there is. His name is Jesus. He's the church's Savior. Second, the, the language in verse 6 of the Spirit of God. The Bible slowly reveals, beginning in Genesis, slowly reveals how God works by His Spirit. And a lot of times I think Christians misunderstand or underplay the Spirit. The Spirit's like the forgotten member of the Trinity. Because we know about God the Father, and we know about God the Son, but what about God the Spirit? And maybe because within branches of our tradition, there's, there's overemphases on the Spirit that maybe a church like ours can minimize the role of the Spirit. But the Bible won't let you do that. It was the Spirit of God who rushed upon Saul. In the Old Testament, anointings were given to key individuals. That's exactly what you're seeing here. Warriors, even builders of the temple, and in this case, kings. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it was given to all the saints. Notice how the Spirit prepared Saul to lead Israel to war. Even that statement in verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and it said, and his anger was greatly kindled. Uh, maybe, maybe that means something like a focused, intentional, unafraid bravery. Because all of us would have said, I'm not fighting this powerful nation. And there's no way I'm going to get my people to respond. But the Spirit of God worked in Saul like an anointing to empower him to do what he needs to do. Well, what does the Spirit of God do in the New Covenant? 
One is it causes us even to respond to Christ. The Spirit softens our hearts to hear, to understand, to accept the gospel. Now, we don't even think of that being the work of the Spirit, but when you, and think of your testimony, think of when you first came to faith in Christ, and you couldn't have seen it at the time. You, you were just thinking you heard a persuasive speech or a, a, a grand emotional appeal and you, with your logic and reasoning, decided you were going to respond. You saw yourself as a sinner who needed a Savior. But Scripture would teach us even that was the work of God's Spirit. Because 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this world, lowercase g, that's Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they're unable to see. So that it actually is the Spirit of God who breaks the shackles of our blindness and has our eyes open. Now, we would have never said that. We would have said, I responded, but what you didn't know, it was God's Spirit working all the time. Just like somebody sitting around Israel near Saul on that day would have seen a man get enraged and bold for leadership. It would have looked on the surface like it was all Saul. But deep and down, it was actually the Spirit of God. Verse 6, that did the work. Another thing the Spirit does in the New Covenant is it gives us fellowship with God through Christ, dwelling personally with every believer. Like it's no longer that the Spirit just kind of once in a while comes on Saul or once in a while unites his people. Now the Spirit of God is in us regularly. That's how Jesus could say almost mysteriously, I will never leave you or forsake you, and yet he ascends to the Father. And the disciples were like, didn't you say you were never leaving us? Because he knew that the presence of God was not just going to be sitting beside a charcoal fire eating fish with the second person of the Trinity, but an actual indwelling with God through the third person of the Trinity. So that whether it's a church like ours in the state line area in northern Illinois, or a group of believers right now in Beijing, China, who are worshiping in some kind of a house, or Christians in a cathedral in London, or a group of Christians in a small church in eastern Ukraine, or somewhere in South Africa, now even there, God is with them. A third thing the Spirit does in the New Covenant is it serves us by being a constant counselor a comforter, and an advocate that guides our Christian lives. When I sat this week with one of our sisters who was going through such grief, I prayed for her and I said, Lord, may your spirit comfort my sister in ways that only you can do. Because I knew, I knew that even in that moment, though an earthly sister had her arm around her and rubbing her back and crying on her shoulder, I knew it would not just be from the outside, but the inside that God's Spirit would say, I am with you, my child. And finally, the Spirit in the New Covenant empowers us to love God, to love neighbor, and to love one another as commanded by King Jesus, even now. Even now, by God's beautiful grace and provision, you're sitting in church and you hear about people who might be suffering. And I tell you about a sister in this body who's struggling this week and may the Spirit of God pulls your heart 
and opened your eyes and has you look right or left to see who is somebody I can encourage. Because you didn't just come to a movie theater to watch a movie. You came to be the ministering saints of God. And there are dozens of people in this room right now who are hurting, who are broken, who need brothers and sisters. And here you are, minister away, but know full well. It is not just because of your goodness and kindness. It is because the Spirit of God loves the children of God so much that He works through us to love one another. The church's Savior is projected in verse 3. The church's Spirit is projected in verse 6. The church's unity is projected in verse 7. Remember what the text says. Then the dread, at the end of verse 7, then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man, one person. The Spirit of God works not just in individuals, but in the new covenant it works in all God's people. Just as verse 7 says, they came out as one man, so the church is called the body of Christ. There's no way. The the, the church for 2,000 years, in light of Paul's teachings about the church as the body of Christ, has always read verse 7 in 1 Samuel 11 as a projection of what will be. One day God would unite all our people, all God's people as one nation, a holy nation set apart a royal priesthood, a chosen race. Our individualistic culture, though, can seek to thwart God's work to make His people unified in mission and fellowship, but the Spirit will never let that happen. Finally, the fourth, the church's Savior, the church's Spirit, the church's unity, and finally in verses 14 and 15, the church's worship. Verses 14 and 15 end with God's people renewing the kingdom, it says. Offering sacrifices, rejoicing and worshiping. Worship of the Redeemer King is what citizens of the kingdom do. And that is what we are doing. That is why knowing even the words I was going to say this morning as I'm sitting over there singing with you and Greg said, is he worthy? And I'm like, oh. He's worthy. There's all creation groaning. It is. Is the new creation coming? It is. He is worthy. And I'm saying those words, and I'm thinking, that's exactly what God's people are called to do. It's to worship. Just as Israel renewed the kingdom and worshiped the king, so every Sunday morning, our local church gathers as an embassy for Christ's kingdom and declares his greatness as both our Savior and our Lord. So what has the Lord taught you in this text today? Maybe it taught you how 1 Samuel 11 is this beautiful projection of the life that we live now in the new covenant that we have a savior who redeems us his people and in whose name we are gathered now we have a spirit who is working in us individually comforting us maybe you need that spirit right now to guide you and to be with you we have a spirit of god working to create us to be unified and we must fight And work with the Spirit to do just that. 
Or even that we have a worship. Our whole gathering here, like the end of 1 Samuel 11, is a projection of the worship that Jesus is due. But hear this, brothers and sisters. We are the people of God's kingdom. We are citizens empowered by the same Spirit of God that rushed upon Saul and united the Israelites. So I say to you this morning from this text, let us then trust King Jesus and serve King Jesus as the Spirit-unified people of God that we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word of truth that ministers to us and help us to be a people that know that you are the one at work. Father, even when the worldly narrative doesn't say it, we can't even see it in the action, help us to know full well that it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. Help us to be people all week who cannot get the song out of our heads or the question presented before us, is he worthy? And help our heartfelt response on rainy afternoons or on sunny mornings be, he is worthy. Because you are Father. We thank you for the gift of your Son, and his reign over all creation. We thank you for the gift and the presence and the ministerial work of your spirit. And I pray, Father, that your people gathered here today will have a renewed understanding of how you're working even now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.